0: A warm welcome to all of our listeners. This is the Capgemini Customer Perspective podcast, where we're going to be keeping you up to date with the latest news from the customer experience world, as well as reviewing the latest trends and technology breakthroughs. I'm joined today by Chris Owen, Head of UK Next Generation Banking, and Charlotte Faraday, Business Design Director from Ideon. Great to have you with us, Charlotte.
1: Thanks, Rena, it's great to be here.
0: And Chris, welcome back seems like you're becoming a bit of a regular in the customer perspective podcast.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Rainer. Looking forward to uh, hearing about the, the world of uh, inclusive design again.
0: Now, you're both here to discuss your perspectives on a topic which we're hearing more and more about in both the design and business world. And as Chris pointed to, that's inclusive design. In today's episode, we're going to debunk the myths on what it means for organizations to be inclusive discuss some challenges in practicing inclusive design and end with a couple of key insights on how organizations can better design products and services optimized for everyone who needs to use them. So Charlotte, terms like inclusive design, accessibility, and universal design, they're often used interchangeably. What would you define as inclusive design and why are you
1: passionate about the topic? Um. So, broadly speaking, inclusive design is designing, uh, it's a design approach that aims to include the largest number of pe- people possible. So, when you're designing products and services, you're designing them in such a way that as many people as possible can access them. It's been around since the 1970s and it grew out of the um, web accessibility standards movement, but it goes far beyond just accessibility. So, inclusive design is about Designing experience, people with a range of needs can use, but it does that by involving them in the process rather than by um, ticking off a checklist of requirements. So the web accessibility standards, it's easy for me to say, um, is, is super important and it makes sure that at a basic level, everything that we design is is accessible. Um, but actually, with inclusive design, what we do is consider the needs of people before we get to that stage. So it not, it's not just about making sure that you're uh, colour contrast is is good enough for people to be able to read what's on the screen. It's about understanding what actually they need in the first place. Um, it's also it's underpinned by the belief that that by designing for the widest range of people possible, it creates better products and services for everybody. So it ultimately it benefits everyone. I think one thing that's important to call out is that it's not just about um, designing for a range of physical needs. It's also about age, race, gender, mental health, literacy, cultural norms. There's so many things that can impact how somebody interacts with a product or service. Even a slight deviation from what is considered the norm can prevent someone from completing the task they're trying to do. And this uh, can make people vulnerable. One additional thing to note is that um, this vulnerability is contextual. So... You often see in big companies, especially in regulated industries, that um, they'll have a segment of vulnerable customers who they treat slightly differently, whether that's by uh, providing different levels of support or different products and services. But the last few months has shown that a slight change in circumstance can suddenly make a huge um, number of people vulnerable. Even outside a pandemic, an unexpected loss of income can quickly spiral into financial vulnerability Anxiety; it can even rub up against complex cultural norms. So we can stray in and out of vulnerability, and we need to design experiences that work for all contexts that people come to us in.
0: And Chris, how would you add to that definition?
2: Um, I think that the straying in and out of vulnerability is is a really important, really interesting area. So data is the new bacon for me in these situations, and um, as a customer. We we have an awful lot of information held by by companies providing us goods and services that they can use to identify and shape experiences when we're in and out of those vulnerable areas. So financial services is a good example of this, where um, we're in a particularly you know, black swan moment, where suddenly ten million people have been furloughed, um, part of the government job retention scheme. They've got huge uncertainty around income, the future, mortgages to pay, bills to pay. These are folks that would never get flagged typically in a in a system on vulnerability because it always looks backwards. It says, you know what did Chris have any reason to you know not not pay his bills how many have any issues that could cause him to be you know vulnerable but now that's happened, I am potentially, and so therefore. Using the data in real time to sort of identify and then shape experiences to support those folks and making that the norm across the whole estate, not just somebody that's got a tick box against them as being vulnerable, I think is is really important. And um, making that effortless, you know, money is an incredibly emotional topic and um, supporting folks through that, using the information we've got to them for good is a really powerful way of using inclusive design in the banking space.
0: Data is indeed the new bacon insights there, Chris. <laughs> Now, we all know that we should design products and services that let all users use and access them. But as you both mentioned, this doesn't always happen. So, Chris, in your view, what, pre- what prevents organisations from prioritising inclusive design?
2: I think it's two things. So I think there's a, a perceived value in the market of of something like inclusive design. And there's also the heritage of inclusivity, which um, Charlotte talks about earlier. I think the sort of starting point is I think that even ge- design in general can struggle to be prioritised in organisations. And then when you're looking at uh, an even more progressive, you know, view on that in inclusive design, it it does struggle. So some of the metrics that organisations are often using to um, measure the return on investment is is geared towards um, growth, cost reduction, regulatory. Um, avoidance, revenue protection, all those kinds of things, it can be a little bit difficult to create a really clear linear line between um, the value of an inclusive design process up front and then the in market benefits. I think they do exist. And I think that um, you can get there, but it's a simpler equation to to look at putting your money into other things. And so inclusive design is, is going to be part of discretionary budgets and therefore it it needs to be able to stand up against other initiatives and refining those metrics being better at linking um the the value in market back to the investment up front i think is is really crucial some organizations do it really well others others struggle and i think that one of the reasons they do struggle is where they've got that heritage view where it's a regulatory compliance consideration Um, so either the people that are charged with leading that battle, maybe come from that background and mindset, and they don't see it as a broader role, or um, they're a one voice amongst a sea of others who don't quite get it. And therefore, you've got to go on a, a sort of campaign, and you've got to sort of change the culture and the mindset of an organization, which just can take an awfully long time. But I do think this tide is turning. You're starting to see market impact on these things. So the the Facebook boycott recently, I think, is a really good example of where an organization had maybe not taken a view around inclusivity and diversity, which it could have done, and very, very quickly saw an immediate bottom line impact. And I'm sure that scarring will, will have affected the culture there and will have changed the way they see and prioritize inclusivity. And big examples in the world like that could could maybe help turn others' views around to
1: as well, which would be great.
0: And what blockers have you identified,
1: Charlotte? Uh, I think there's a couple of things that can be blockers. One is always going to be cost. There's a mindset that inclusive design is about designing for a minority of customers with special needs. But actually, even if we're only talking about people with physical impairments, the numbers are huge. In the UK, there are 7 million people of, um, in the working age who have some kind of disability. Um, And actually, once you expand inclusive design out to include that, that broader definition of basically anybody who wants to feel welcomed by your product and service and feel like it's been designed with their needs in mind, then it's really, it's not about a minority, it's the majority of the population. There's also a sense that if you're designing for people with specific needs, that you'll have to compromise the core experience for the rest of your customers. But history's shown that this this just isn't true. The OXO Good Grips range is a great example of something that's designed for people with arthritis that's fundamentally just great design and has been a huge commercial success for OXO. Um, I have far too many of their products in my kitchen.
0: So we're all acutely aware that we are living in a challenging time and that cost, which Charlotte, you spoke about just there, that it remains top of mind for many. So Chris, considering that, why should inclusive design be prioritised?
2: I think that the, the fundamental reason is that it is it is good for the organization. I think it will provide them a stronger return on investment and um, more sustainable growth. I think there's four key trends that, that drive that. So you're seeing consumer behavior and demand changing rapidly. We require much more personalization. I think that drive for personalization and goods, services, experiences being shaped around our wants and needs using Data and information can only be a good thing for inclusive design because it it broadens it sort of shortens that gap between what is needed for great inclusive design and what is needed for great design. And I think that's going to be a really big driver. I think you're seeing a regulatory driver there, where companies will want to prioritize inclusivity and diversity because they have to. They don't want to fall foul of regulators, and you're seeing regulators taking an increasingly dim view on organisations that don't prioritize those those pieces linked a little bit to the demand but the sort of tech advancement is making it so much easier to to shape and deliver experiences that are tailored and inclusive for all that there's a why wouldn't you do this question when the cost is the same or you know very similar you know what you need to get back in terms of a return is is reduced and therefore you're going to see more and more prioritized because the cost of doing it is less And I think there's always the threat angle. You will see folks coming in and eating other people's dinner if they don't step up to the plate. So if organizations aren't prioritizing inclusivity, they are going to fall foul of that. And one of the reasons for that is the demographics of the sort of Western population, where a lot of the organizations we're talking about will be looking to sustain and grow their businesses. You've got um, 50 percent of the UK population is over 50. That trend is pretty common across the rest of the Western world, more acute than others. As we get older, we are going to have different wants, needs, disability access requirements that we've just never had before. And therefore, the organizations that and brands we value and service now will need to adapt to us. And that is going to require an inclusive design skill set, mindset, capability. So I think they're going to have to do it anyway just to keep the customers they've got. And um, a really good example of that sort of globalization challenge as well is, as you have organizations going to sort of maintain and compete in a global economy, that diversity is really key. So things like Face ID have got really interesting histories on this where they were predominantly built for Caucasian um, users. And then when you sort of took the same technology and tried to drop it into Japan or Israel, it just failed because it, it couldn't recognize the users because it hadn't been designed for that you know, more diverse user group when it was when it was built. And particularly in the biometric space, that led to a massive uh, drive of really creative, market-leading biometrics coming out of Israel that sort of took over the world market and became the market leader. So by not doing that design for all in the first space, the, the new entrants around Face ID lost the market because um, they they didn't, they create an opportunity for other companies to come in and, and overtake them basically.
0: That's really interesting, Chris. And Charlotte, coming back to you, beyond the increase to Oxo market share based on your love of their good grips, what do you think the ROI of inclusive
1: design is? So um, I think it's been really interesting. We're definitely seeing a shift in the conversations we're having. So inclusive design used to sit firmly with heads of vulnerability or diversity and inclusion teams. But more and more, we're talking to a broader range of stakeholders to support those conversations. We've been developing new tools and frameworks to identify and measure the business impact of inclusive design, because actually, that's why people are going to prioritize it at the end of the day. At, At a very base level, the business benefit is obvious. If you're designing services that more people can use, then your addressable market is bigger. It's a it's a no brainer particularly in a world where consumers are increasingly choosing purpose and values driven organizations. It's, it's increasingly important. Also, I think uh, what Chris was just saying about the face ID technologies, one thing that's um, fairly well proven is that if you, if you do the inclusive design work at the beginning, it's way, way cheaper than then trying to retrospectively fix what you've done. So either somebody else will come in and eat your lunch and you'll have missed your opportunity or you'll spend a huge amount of money doing workarounds that you wouldn't have had to do if you'd um, done the thinking and the work and involved the right people in the first place.
0: So it seems as though there's a real business case for inclusivity, certainly from a customer and end user perspective. What opportunities do you think exist internally for organisations
1: that are looking to practice inclusive design principles? I think that internal design often lags behind the curve. So companies tend to get things right for their customers first and then turn their gaze internally. But actually, it's super important for organizations to design their workplace processes with the same attention to inclusivity that they might extend to their customers. If you think about how often most consumers interact with their favorite products and services, it's probably a handful of times a week maybe once a day if it's a a really high engagement product but we use our work tools all day every day and they can have a major impact on people's well-being something we've been looking at a lot recently is is designing for anxious minds which has an obvious impact on designing for the workplace the fixes don't have to be complicated either we've developed a set of inclusive design experience principles things like reducing ambiguity giving people enough time to complete tasks Offering support as part of the process, they're just things that that reduce the mental load of doing your daily tasks, um, and they're just as valid for designing internal processes as they are for customer interfaces.
0: And Chris, to bring you in here, what would you suggest to those looking to create a more inclusive culture in the workplace?
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial. If you look at um, one of the sort of top three priorities for all all CXOs. I'm I'm certain they're all called to talent as being one of them. And talent acquisition is, is changing when big shiny offices, job titles, you know um, very large pay packets, those kind of things were drove a lot of the priorities in the, the sort of the current leadership generation. Some of those things will be true of the, the next wave of people coming into organizations to um, deliver and lead them. But I do think it's overwhelmingly shifted towards purpose, um, work-life balance, connection, autonomy, doing things that interest us. These are these are the drivers for picking the organizations we work with. They they drive the brands we pick to buy our goods and services from, and they, they drive the organizations we want to work for. And therefore, being inclusive in our products, our experiences, our cultures. Is going to be fundamental to finding, keeping, and developing the talent to drive the businesses forward, and um, that's that's going to be a really important driver for again why organisations would want to look at inclusivity and inclusive design as a as a really essential part of their their growth strategy for the future.
0: So I'm not going to direct my next question to either of you specifically because I don't want one of you to blame me if the other takes your answer and Charlotte you're not allowed to mention OXO grips because you've done that already. Um, But can you point to any examples of inclusive design that you wish were your own?
2: Fair enough. Okay, well, um, I think when answering the question, it's important just to to take a step back and remember those key principles of inclusive design. It is about designing for everyone, not necessarily designing for impairment. And so, you know, one of my favorite examples is super simple and it's, um, it's toothpaste. So if you think about, the traditional toothpaste tube it would have required two hands to use a screw cap and then you've evolved into the flip lid which only needs one um you know a simple example but for me it's, it's absolutely beautiful and it encapsulates how designing for everybody works and the mantra of it like when you've got that flip lid you know you don't you've designed a product for people who are impaired but everyone can use it doesn't feel like it's that kind of product it makes a huge difference you know taking the need down from you know, holding the tube in one hand and the lid in the other through to just being able to hold it in one hand and flip it open. You know, beautifully simple example of inclusive design for me. Rolling into the tech side, I think that um, people like Google and Apple are, are good examples, particularly on the software end. So you know they've baked in a large range of accessibility functions into their operating systems and their their build applications that make it really easy, really intuitive for designers to build um applications that are inclusive so if you look at like the google's um dev space it's got some great automations in there that prompts that will help you when you're building ux so that if you're putting buttons too far away from each other in the wrong place um that would not be necessarily easy as a as a user to do it'll flag it up are you sure you want to put that there did you know that would potentially cause issues for people with x y and z and that's all automated rule-based inside the the software that means that everyone that's then deploying applications through their ecosystem has effectively been through some kind of inclusivity qa um, as you go forward and because they're at the cutting edge of cloud and machine learning you now th- those algorithms are constantly learning and as new applications are built it's building in new data and driving it forward so it's only getting more intelligent in helping deliver applications through those those platforms that that are inclusive, which is you know a great way of you know raising the bar for everybody by by putting it in place in their um their dev systems, which is you know kudos and well done.
0: Brilliant, thanks, Chris. So, Charlotte, big tech and flip top toothpaste, can you beat either of those?
1: So, I I've got two um, quite different examples. So the first one is a, is actually, it's a service which is being trialled by um, a couple of major UK supermarkets, which is having a quiet hour where um, autistic shoppers can visit the shop. Obviously, everybody else is still welcome to visit the shop during that time. But during that one hour a day, they turn off the beeps on the machines and they turn off any tannoy announcements because they're things that are um, really stressful for shoppers that have autism or anything on the autistic spectrum so it's a really again it's a really simple thing that they've changed they haven't had to spend any money on it, it it's not something that is going to cost them anything or limit the number of customers that can it can experience the shop it's just uh it creates a safer place for those more vulnerable customers to visit um They've been, they were trialing it pre-lockdown. I think during lockdown they've had other things on their mind, so I don't know yet whether it's going to be rolled out um, UK-wide as a permanent thing. But it was a trial that was going really well last year. Um, the other example is a digital one, and it's also it's slightly cheeky because it's um, a project that we worked on. But last year we did a piece of work for British Gas, which I think is another great example of how a tiny change can have a big impact. We were working on the. Uh, experience of submitting a meter reading. And there was an option in the existing journey that hardly anybody used, which was that you could submit a reading without logging in. The initial thinking was that we could clean up that bit of the interface and make it more secure. But actually, what we learned during the process um, was that the tiny number of people who were using that feature were carers. And that only came out because the team at British Gas do um, they have fully embedded in inclusive design into their um, practice. So it just, they, they discovered it because that's the way they work. Whereas actually, I think in many organizations, they wouldn't have come across that feature because they wouldn't have been speaking to the right people to understand who was really using it. Um, so having worked out who was using that feature, it was then a really, uh, there were some really clear, but quite simple things that we could do to actually, Reduce the there was a slight security risk of people log uh, submitting a meter reading without logging in so we just changed the copy on the page to make it clearer what that was for so rather than it just saying submit a meter reading without logging in we changed it so that it said are you submit, uh, submitting a reading for yourself or for somebody else um, that reduction in ambiguity meant that uh, more people who are in that position of being carers for vulnerable people knew that actually they were allowed to do that because some people felt quite hesitant about doing it they weren't sure if it was a bit dodgy for them to be submitting a reading but it meant that the vulnerable people didn't need to do it themselves they didn't need to engage online if it was something difficult they also didn't need to share their account details with anybody else so it was kind of a win-win in terms of reducing a sort of a slight security risk um, making it clearer what it was for as well, so that the people that were using it felt more confident in using it, and it made it less likely that other people would use it just because they were too lazy to log in. Um, and it's been a, a really effective change. But I think it's a really good example of how a really tiny change can make a big difference. But you're only going to identify that if you're speaking to the right people in the first place.
0: Some really meaningful examples there from both of you and. In- I think it just goes to showcase the power of inclusive design and and the impact that it can have. We're coming to the end of our podcast, but just before we go, for anyone that's feeling inspired to begin their inclusive design journey today, which I'm sure they will be, Charlotte, what would be your advice?
1: Uh, I'd say that for anyone who wants to know more about inclusive design and how it can help design more customers into your business, head over to the ID and Inclusive Design microsite. You can find it at vulnerability.idean.com. And if you want to get started being more inclusive and would like some help, we offer a couple of mini engagements to help people work out where to start in their organizations. So the first thing we could do for you is an inclusivity audit so we can look at your existing products and services, make recommendations for ways you could better meet the needs of your customers. We've also created a game called Cards for Humanity this started out as a physical card game, but actually we've um, now made a digital version. So it's now available online or will be very, very soon. Um, Cards for Humanity helps teams build empathy for the people they're designing for. And it's actually a really helpful shortcut so that um, as long as you have some insights about your customers, you can use Cards for Humanity to expand that out to different people with different needs sets because it randomizes collections of traits it's also really good fun it's a great um idea generation tool and we've uh can run workshops to support that so if you want a facilitated cards for humanity session to get your to help your teams get the most out of what they're doing then uh yeah just get in touch and chris i'll come to you for some closing thoughts
2: yeah i'd I'd recommend anyone in an organization that's in a leadership role that that thinks I want to do more I want to sort of drive more inclusivity into our offerings I want to make this a, a more inclusive more beautiful place to work I'd, I'd say the starting point is engagement it's just get out there and and create an energy and make it a topic you know we, we learn in life by doing things and I think things like hacks are a great way of Bringing the organization together, getting people aligned around a, a theme, which could be inclusivity, and just have, and just change, trying to change things. Have a go at building, folk, building things with teams, get people together, having a go at aligning on inclusivity and seeing where it takes you. Those ideas can then be sponsored. They can drive through the business. You could you know, create a challenge that allows you to shape the next offering we're making into the market. It could be making a change internally. But... To a certain extent, the out the output is is less important than the, the mindset and the cultural shift you're making in the business that gets people caring and focused and infused by inclusivity. And that can only be a good thing.
0: A huge thanks, Chris and Charlotte, for joining us today and for sharing your insight. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to the Capgemini Customer Podcast using your favorite podcasting app, for example, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And please do join us for our next episode, where we'll be joined by our digital marketing team as we explore the future of social media marketing. Until then, thanks for listening.